Well, you may have seen these photos. They're starting to emerge. A refrigerator on its side on a beach off northern Vancouver Island looks a little bit out of place, but that is what some residents in the area of Cape Scott are finding. And these are items that have come from the containers that were on that ship that caught fire. More containers went into the ocean than we previously thought. The good news is the fire on that ship is now completely out. But joining us to talk about what is happening with this is Robert Lewis Manning the CEO of the BC Chamber of Shipping. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Good afternoon, Jill. Uh, How concerned should we be or should we be about the containers and refrigerators and some other goods now washing ashore? I think as far as concern, it's all about um, the safety of people. And uh, and if those containers have been through, uh, what they've been through is a violent storm. There could be a lot of sharp pieces. There could be... um, refrigerants that have leaked. They're they're just a a good thing to avoid. A great thing to report, and that is very helpful when the public reports finding um, anything that looks like it may have come from uh, containers, but uh, it's a a look-but-don't-touch situation. Uh, Are you concerned that people might not heed that advice, though, and and we're not sure, or maybe we are sure. Do we know if any of the containers that had hazardous materials are ones that have fallen into the ocean? I think it's been widely reported. There were two containers that did contain uh, a dangerous uh, good. And uh, at the moment, those two containers are unlocated. So, yes, there, there is a concern. And um, on the positive side, uh, when containers have washed up uh, between the Coast Guard and the operator of the vessel, they've been able to identify them quickly and, and reconcile them with the um, manifest of the cargo. Right. And uh, looking into this more, I I think because it was happening off the coast of Vancouver Island, it was obviously getting a lot more attention here. Uh, But but we do have a certain number or every year a number of containers do fall off ships. Um, Yeah, I think that's that's widely recognized. Um, Considering the number of containers that are moving around the world, it's it's a very small percentage. Um, But it does happen from time to time. And it's usually a result of um, adverse weather conditions. Were you surprised at all that the number changed that we originally thought or the Coast Guard originally thought it was about 40 containers that had fallen off this particular ship and it's actually about 109? Um, Yes and no. I think uh, until you can actually get um, close to where the damage and the fire has happened, it's difficult to provide detail accounting for the number of containers. So that part is not a surprise. Um, and yeah, I think like everybody, um, surprised at the number and, uh, hopeful that, uh, we can locate and find them and recover them quickly. Uh, whose jurisdiction would that fall under then? If, if we're seeing more of the goods inside, whether it's uh, shoes, toys, I know we were told there were Christmas decorations, stand up paddle boards. If more of this uh, starts washing ashore, where does it fall as far as who's in charge of cleaning it up? Uh, well, the company who operates the vessel is um, contracted a salvage company to do that work, and that is their responsibility. And obviously, it would be a multi-agent uh, agency effort just because of the fact that these containers are washing up um, in somebody's local community. Um, so there will be a lot of um, um, cross dialogue between different levels of government and local authorities in order to make sure that um, the response is done safely and and, in a timely timely fashion as possible. But it's uh, it's obviously very complex, and some of the places these goods are landing and the containers are landing are fairly remote, so it's going to take some time. 
And as for the investigation into the fire and that part, uh, the good news again from the Coast Guard that uh, the fire that had been smoldering is out. Who leads that or when do you think we might get more information or more answers as to how this all unfolded? I think it'll take some time for answers. Uh, Typically, investigations are very thorough and they take um, months, if not years. Um, Hopefully, this is accelerated so that we can learn from it and respond to it if it's necessary. Um, But it's the Transport Safety Board of Canada that will lead that effort. And what are your thoughts now kind of looking at this and uh, anything that that you didn't anticipate or anything that we've learned from this? Did did anything happen that... that Obviously, nobody ever wants to have a fire on a container ship like this. But with the evacuation of a lot of the pass or the sorry the crew members and how things unfolded, uh, was it kind of the best case scenario for a bad or, or potentially dangerous situation? Um, it, it really was. Um, you know, there, there's never a good time to have a fire, but I think we're very fortunate that uh, it happened near an area with significant resources. Um, And obviously the Coast Guard's headquarters is located literally um, a few kilometers away. And uh, and, uh, it it isn't a bad thing that the vessel was at anchor. So it provided some uh, distance from local communities. So yeah, all in all, um, the response was very quick and very thorough. And and I think uh, now it gets into a much more deliberate stage where the salvage operation will take will take time. And will the salvage operation also focus on those two containers unaccounted for that do have dangerous materials in them? It does. So I, there's a obviously the salvage um, part related to the vessel and the salvage part related to the containers that fell off um, prior to the fire. And I would, I would imagine, though, uh, it's one thing when a container washes ashore, trying to find a container in the ocean sounds like the, the proverbial needle in a haystack. It, it is extremely challenging, and uh, we have to recall it was just in the last week that we've had two major storms um, hit the west coast of Vancouver Island. So there's been a lot of, a lot of ocean churn in the last week, and uh, that's obviously making this more complex. And the area that needs to be covered or uh, surveyed to look for those containers is, is much larger now than um, anyone would hope for. All right. Uh, we will be uh, waiting and listening uh, for any updates on that. Robert Lewis Manning, thank you so much for joining us again. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Jim. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, I know a lot of cities are gearing up for what will likely be a busy Halloween with more people having plans for Halloween. The weather is supposed to be nice, as you just heard in the weather report. More kids will likely be out trick-or-treating. But there are always more calls made as well, more emergency calls, whether it's fireworks going off, whether or not supposed to, or something even more serious. And Delta police have issued a warning about fireworks, reminding people about the rules when it comes to fireworks. And this comes after we found out yesterday as well that two people have been charged in connection with an investigation into marijuana edibles in Halloween bags last year. Well, Chris Lakoff is the public affairs manager with Delta Police and joins us now. Chris, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Jill. I wanted to start with the charges, and I know this was in the news yesterday. The release came out, but how rare is it that people are facing charges under the Cannabis Act? Uh, Well, uh, it's not something uh, that our officers uh, have done a lot of, actually. 
so it's fairly new. Our court liaison um, uh, a staff member was actually commenting that she hasn't uh, worked with that many. So uh, we wanted really to make sure that we use this opportunity to remind parents how important it is to check Halloween candy uh, before allowing children to consume any treats. It was about a year ago um, that this happened where parents actually uh, did discover cannabis edibles or suspected cannabis edibles in their child's Halloween bag and contacted us. At that time, our officer, um, our officers weren't able to locate where uh, the candy came from, uh, but it was the follow-up work in the weeks later um, that officers managed to pinpoint a suspected residence. And I know that it's still earlier, early on in the case, and charges have just been laid. But it, mm-hmm. was it the the idea that that it wasn't as though these things accidentally made their way into these trick or treat bags? It's really unknown at, to the, at this point as to how that happened, and the charges actually. Um, uh, we're not in relation to the Halloween treat bags. Uh, it was uh, two counts of possession for the purposes of distribution, and then one count of altering cannabis by use of an organic solvent. And uh, the two individuals each were facing uh, those three charges. Okay. And the, the second one, does that, to, to break it down into layman's terms, <laughs> does that mean to cook them or to make them into cookies or that kind of thing? Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, the the search warrant uh, on the dwelling, uh, our officers actually found thousands of cannabis edibles uh, in this building and uh, determined that the dwelling was actually dedicated to cannabis production, extraction, packaging for street sale, as well as advertising. Uh, And in addition to the edibles, um, they also seized packaging and labeling materials and equipment. All right. And so and the timing then, it just it happened to be that there was this file then as well with the marijuana edibles, with the distinctive, the cartoon style logo that was Mm -hmm. also found in the treat bag. Uh, Yeah, that's correct. Uh, It was some back end work actually done by one of our constables. Uh, She was. Uh, reviewing actually a Crime Stoppers tip in regard to some suspected Cannabis Act violations, and that led her to a different website. And uh, then she reviewed this Halloween file in regard to the edibles being found in the treat bags. And she noticed that there was a distinctive cartoon-style logo that had been found in the treat bags and put two and two together. And uh, that then led to the suspect residence. Hmm. And do we know then, it sounds like these were discovered, or did the children actually consume the edibles? Uh, Fortunately not, no. But a good warning, like you said as well, that uh, when we have so many of them, whether they're legal or not, so many Mm -hmm. of them that look like candy, and a lot of people wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Uh, That's correct, yes. So it's always important for parents to uh, review what's in their children's bags before allowing them to eat anything. All right. Uh, Good advice as we get closer to Halloween night. Also wanted to talk to you about fireworks because every year uh, we know there can be a bit of a patchwork of rules when it it comes to uh, the lower mainland, to Metro Mm -hmm. Vancouver. I think this is the first year that, that they're banned in Vancouver. What are the rules in Delta? So here in Delta, it's not legal to set off fireworks unless you have a permit from the fire department, and that's something that would have had to have been applied for in advance of Halloween night. So, And our officers, are, of course, are aware of anyone who does have a permit. So 
they'll be looking for anyone who is um, setting off fireworks or uh, also selling or um, trading fireworks. Okay, because the so the the tweet that went out from the Delta Police Department said they're illegal to purchase or use in the city of Delta, and saying that if you're planning on celebrating uh, this uh, on this, oh, this is this was back. This was talking about the July long weekend. So the mm-hmm. the difference then being with this is if you have a permit that yeah. you you are able to do it in a specific uh, under under certain circumstances. Yeah, and you typically uh, every year there might be one or two permits issued. I'm not sure how many have been issued uh, for Halloween. That's something our officers kind of finalize and get information on um, in the in the days right before Halloween. Uh, but uh, yeah, normally there's not that many actual permitted events. And what happens if somebody is caught setting off fireworks and uh, they don't have a permit? Well, they would be potentially subject to a, a fine under the bylaw, and that's uh, for possessing fireworks without a permit here in Delta. That's a $175 fine, and selling fireworks is a $225 fine. But depending on what happens uh, in regard to how they're being used, some of our concerns aren't necessarily just possessing these. They're also um, whether or not someone might actually be injured or whether a fire, for example, might be accidentally set. Last year, our officers confiscated a huge firework from an impaired 16-year-old who was trying to light that firework. Uh, That had a huge potential for injury, um, although the teen apparently wasn't very happy that it was confiscated at that time. Uh, We were very pleased to uh, make sure that no one was injured because um, the manner in which they were trying to light it would have pretty much guaranteed injury. Hmm. And also, I mean, mean, you've mentioned injury uh, to people, fires. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, we've seen house fires started in the past and every year as well. Anybody who has pets knows that pets can be pretty spooked by them too. (laughs) Exactly, yes. And that's something a lot of people, we've got a lot of dog lovers uh, in Delta, and they're very concerned about uh, fireworks being let off. So we're hoping that people will take into consideration the needs of neighbors uh, with uh, four-legged friends and uh, and uh, show some consideration. Is it a tough one to to police, other than the, the scenario you just explained showed uh, how the, the confiscation happened? But if it's somebody that's just, say, letting them off in a cul-de-sac or doing a quick letting, mm-hmm. letting of them off, it must be difficult to to, to try and catch somebody in the act? Uh, yeah, our officers do spend some time uh, running around after people doing this on Halloween, honestly. Uh, and so we're hoping to, um, you know, every year we try and uh, nip these things in the bud as much as possible. Uh, we do have extra um, officers on for Halloween night, and and this weekend it we're expecting, you know, increased call loads throughout the weekend, given that Halloween falls on a Sunday. Uh, a Sunday and nice weather. I know oftentimes when it's pouring rain, well, well, a lot of people don't like that forecast. We've talked to <laughs> officers and law enforcement. Uh, they never seem, they seem to welcome uh, a rainy Halloween night. But is it with the, <laughs> the weekend and, and sunny weather, is that potentially even worse? Uh, yeah, you'll definitely see more people on the streets probably uh, with the sunny weather. And I can sympathize for the trick-or-treating. You you know, you want the dry weather. And, and uh, our officers really enjoy uh, actually giving out candy, um, that kind of thing when we can. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a balance like all things. All right. We'll leave it there. Chris Lakoff, thanks so much for your time and have a hopefully uh, quiet-ish and good Uh-oh. weekend. I'll knock on wood here.
Thanks for being with us. It is Friday, so this story seems timely. The B.C. government sent out a release earlier today saying that grabbing that packaged single glass of wine or draft beer with takeout or having it delivered when you're ordering in is now possible. B.C., the government saying this is another revenue-generating option for licensed restaurants and pubs in this province. So we wanted to talk more about this, and joining us is Jeff Guinard the executive director of Able BC, that's BC's Alliance of Beverage Licensees. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure, Jill. How are you doing? I'm very well. How about you? Good, thanks. I am slightly confused by this news release, though, because I thought this was already happening. Yeah, so what ended up happening is we had cocktails to go. So for a strange, you know, regulatory reasons, they were able to allow permission to sell cocktails and mixed drinks, but we couldn't get permission to sell, you know, a glass of wine or a pint of beer. So it's sort of a two-part announcement. You can think of it in one way. This ideally would have been announced several months ago, but the government had to do some stuff to, to make it make sense. As you know, the liquor industry is highly regulated, and we've got tons of rules and policies to follow. So they had to had to make this make sense. And it took a little bit longer, but as uh, as of now, you're able to go, and if you don't want to order an entire bottle of wine with your dinner when you're getting some takeout or delivery, you can actually now order a glass or a half liter or something like that instead, which gives customers some more options. Okay. Because what was confusing me as well was there there are places where you've been able to order having the option of, say, a can of beer or a six-pack of beer when you're ordering takeout or ordering yeah. food to be delivered. Yeah. So the permission we had was like, you know, cocktails, mixed cocktails, mixed drinks, things like that, as well as prepackaged things. So you could sell a can of beer or a can of wine. But if you look at something like, you know, the, the wine industry, yeah, there's options for cans and those sort of single-serving environments, but there's much greater variety in bottles. So what we were seeking was permission to sell in someone a glass of wine from a bottle that's not available in can, right? Or some customers, you know, they're, they're happy to drink out of a can or a bottle, but they actually really prefer the flavor profile of draft beer. So now we can pour them, um, you know, a pint of beer or two pints of beer, whatever they want, and, uh, and have that delivered to them instead, which is not just better um, value for consumers, but it's actually... It can be really advantageous from the price as well, right? So, for example, if you're um, you know trying to celebrate at home and you want to order a couple glasses or a couple of ounces of a very rare, expensive scotch, you don't necessarily want to spend three hundred dollars to have the bottle delivered, uh, and the restaurant doesn't necessarily you know want to do that either. They're not a liquor store, right? They're a liquor, uh, they're um, a restaurant, a pub. So, what we can do now is sell you those two ounces at you know twenty dollars each or something like that. But that's the right cost for it. So it's cheaper for you and you get exactly what you want. Uh, It's interesting. I mean, it makes total sense now that you've explained it, but also Mm. points at, like you said, the red tape and the bureaucracy that we've seen for so long (laughs) in this industry. Yeah. And, you know, I have to say, I mean, the NDP government is working really hard all throughout the pandemic. And, you know, we we go back to even when we introduced wholesale pricing for restaurants and pubs back early in the the pandemic. That that was an idea whose time had long since come. Um, during the pandemic, our industry, you know, the hospitality industry, has been losing money or barely breaking even for the past two years. So all these little permissions have been designed to help you know, that industry of 2,000 pubs and 8,000 licensed restaurants from, from going bankrupt. And every little bit has helped throughout this. And, and this just gives us more options now to ensure that we're offering customers what they want at a better affordable price and give the, those restaurants and pubs an opportunity to just get a little bit more margin on those takeout delivery meals. Uh, the the release also goes on to say that uh, it's possible or this could help with health impacts, I, I guess, uh, associated with over-serving or, or, or having to purchase more rather than a single serving. Do you think that will actually make a difference? Yeah, I think there's, a, there's certainly a good point on that. And I would say, first off, to be clear to all the listeners out there, that when you're ordering takeout or delivery from a restaurant uh, or pub, you do have to order it with a meal. So it's not a liquor store, right? So they're not just going to send you a six-pack of wine or a bottle of beer. 
But what this does is um, most customers, they don't actually want to buy a bottle of spirits, right? If you want to make a Negroni at home and you're ordering it with dinner somewhere, you don't want to buy a, a bottle of gin, a bottle of Campari, and a bottle of vermouth and spend you know, $150 on alcohol. You want two $12 drinks served with it, right? So uh, what that does is it makes sure that you're getting exactly the amount you want because all of a sudden you have the bottles at home. Maybe you end up drinking an extra drink that you didn't necessarily plan to do. Uh, and I know our health advocates are always concerned about making sure people are monitoring their consumption. And you know they've got a great point about that. So I feel like this is a way of helping in that as well. And I would imagine the licensees, anybody, the businesses that this impacts, like you mentioned, too, anything that kind of helps continuing to get through the pandemic and finding ways to keep that revenue. Yeah. And, you know, you can look at the innovation that's come from our sector. And it's been really impressive to watch people fighting for their businesses because they literally have been fighting for their financial lives with this pandemic. And you see things like cocktails to go kits going on. And it started off with selling people bottles. And, you know, customers just don't really want to spend that amount of money on it. Um, and now we're able to give them exactly what they want. So if you really just want that pint of beer or you want, you know, a glass of a delicious single malt scotch or you want a, um, a cocktail or you want, the, you know, several bottles, the restaurants and pubs can have the options to provide that with their takeout and delivery meals, right? So that's only going to be good for consumers. And it gives those businesses a chance to get a little bit of extra revenue at a time when we desperately need it. Uh, you mentioned, too, that it's not uh, going to be that you could just order these drinks and get them delivered, that they are they go with a meal. Even that, though, and, and I get the reasoning, but is that because of pushback from liquor stores and that they don't want the competition if somebody then just chooses to order from a restaurant or a pub? Yeah, everyone's on the same page about this. And, and government has you know controlled the number of liquor outlets in British Columbia, right? There's only 200 government stores and 670 private stores. Uh, and the idea on that is also to support health advocates and also to protect those businesses, right? I mean, here in British Columbia, uh, there's a, some regulatory protections around those businesses to ensure that they can be profitable and survive. And no one wants to make 10,000 new liquor stores in the province. Uh, it's just the, the business framework wouldn't support it, and there'd just be a whole bunch of people losing money out of it. So I think that's part of the rationale. Uh, but additionally, you know, when you think of the primary purpose of a restaurant or a pub, it is to provide alcohol with that food service. And that's been a longstanding policy rationale here in British Columbia. Uh, so allowing people to, you know, not, not trying to be a liquor store, but to sell, you know, the, the drink experience that people want with their food is, is entirely the rationale that they're following with this. Are, are there other things you would like to still see change or that we've seen kind of put a spotlight on as far as overregulated in the industry? Well, you know, there's a whole bunch of little things that add up to profitability. And one of the ones that everyone is, is talks a lot about is, you know, when you're providing these takeout or delivery services, you t- chances are you're using a, a third-party food delivery service like Fit the Dishes or Uber or DoorDash or something like that. They take an exorbitant fee. Um, and the fees are so large that the provincial government had to temporarily put in a cap and say you can't charge more than 15%. So sometimes, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm ordering some food and I'm, maybe I'm ordering a sandwich or something and it's the bill of $20, but somehow when it's delivered to my house, it costs $38. <laughs> and that's because I'm tipping the restaurant, I'm tipping the driver, and I'm also paying you know, 20% uh, additional cost on it. So we're asking government to make that cap permanent, which would be a 15% cap on that uh, those sort of food services can charge, which has happened in other jurisdictions, and those companies are still be able to make profit, and that way we don't have to gouge consumers, um, and then a lot of the restaurants are just operating their kitchens at a loss, essentially. So that's one of the ones that we're pushing for now. Right. And are you confident, or, or what is your level of confidence that we might see that? Well, there's a temporary cap that's going to be in place until the end of the year, until December 31st, and after that, the provincial government needs to pass new legislation, and that's always a long, complicated process, but I'm really quite confident that the government understands our challenge here and they'll have our back.
Uh, because I guess we really have shifted from the days of when restaurants did their own delivery because it is just so much easier with apps and, and these third-party companies. But do you see any other solutions to that? Well, I mean, part of the challenge, the reason we were using these delivery services is, you know, if, if I open up Jeff's Pub and you have to use Jeff's delivery service, how in the world the customer can even know about that? Customers like the convenience of going to one single point where they can access all of the restaurants, all of the pubs, and everybody at the same time, right? So. Uh, it's not that we can't get the technology solutions or a pub can't do it themselves. It's that that's not where customers look. So that that's a big challenge. Um, there's a whole bunch of other little minor regulatory issues that we're, we're working on. Um, and and I, I, the government has been really great to work with. And you're going to see things like we're looking at minimum pricing policies and, um, and you know, some different delivery services. And I think there's going to be a lot of innovation coming in the industry in the next couple of years as we recover from covid uh, it is pretty amazing to think about that when you look back at just how much conversation and debate there was about trying to get happy hour in this province <laughs> to where we are now. Yeah, it's it's very true. And, um, you know, it always takes a long time. And in a highly regulated industry like liquor, even things that make sense can take forever. Uh, and there's all kinds of challenges in the back end, too, about how we uh, get products shipped and delivered to us. And the customers often wonder, like, why is it so expensive? I mean, if you go to other provinces or other jurisdictions, you're know, like, why, why am I paying so much more here in British Columbia? Uh, and that's just got to do with a lot of back-end inefficiencies, or we have a higher taxation system um, that we have to pay as well on that, right? So we're just passing off the cost to consumers, and there's more work to do in that environment as well. Uh, what are your thoughts heading into uh, the holiday season? It's not that far away. We're almost into November uh, with the lifting of a lot of the restrictions. Uh, still, I think dancing yeah. is is not not being encouraged. But what are your thoughts uh, with people kind of getting back into having actual gatherings and festive gatherings? Yeah, we're, we're it's finally going to start to feel a bit more like normal. I mean, right now, we've just had a lessening of the restrictions. And, and everyone needs to understand this is a gradual phase. Uh, step. I mean, I know we all wish we were in phase four of the recovery plan by now, but, um, you know, Dr. Henry is really concerned about case counts and how many people in the hospital and the mortalities that are being caused by this disease. So essentially, the good news for us is you can now stand again in a, in a licensed premise and you can now mingle with your friends. So hol- this weekend, if you're going out for Halloween, uh, you no longer have to be assigned to a table and sitting there only with your friends. If you see a family member or a friend across the room, just keep your mask on, but you can get up and go and see them. So that really changes the environment, right? And then you can think of wedding receptions and, and holiday parties and Christmas parties and things like that. We're now getting back to having no capacity restrictions. And all we're really saying is you have to wear a mask and you cannot dance. And I do expect we'll have dancing back by the holidays. Um, you know, this is all very, I can say, a phased approach. And we've gone from people being seated, uh, you know, and it wasn't so long ago that people had to be seated in a group of no more than six sitting two meters away from people, right? So we're, we're gradually getting back there. And all of these protocols are really tough on businesses. They're frustrating for consumers, uh, but now that everyone in those bars and in those events are double vaccinated, um, you, have to, you have to prove that before you can get in. Most of the staff are vaccinated. A lot of places have policies in place to ensure their staff are vaccinated. Um, it's it's going to be yeah a little bit more fun, right? A little bit more exciting. And it, when I think about it, it's been two years since we've been able to gather uh, and actually enjoy those kinds of receptions. So I'm personally really looking forward to it, and I know industry is too. All right, Jeff, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us today. Have a good weekend. You as well. Take care. Also coming up on the program, we're checking in with a Vancouver comedian and podcast host, getting his response to a Supreme Court of Canada ruling. And the court ruled earlier today, it was in the case of comedian Mike Ward's comments about a disabled singer. The court ruling that his comments did not amount to discrimination under Quebec's 
Rights Charter. This was a case that started in Quebec. The ruling was close, though, which is what I think a lot of people are looking at and still having a lot of concern. It was a 5-4 ruling, the highest court setting aside a decision that ordered comedian Mike Ward to pay damages for mocking Jeremy Gabriel. And the court in its ruling said that a discrimination claim must not become a defamation action. Take a listen to this comment. This is from Jeremy Gabriel, and Gabriel held a news conference after the court ruling earlier today. This was a news conference that was held in Montreal. Uh, He's saying that he would have liked to, to discuss the issue directly with comedian Mike Ward, particularly over one specific part of Mike Ward's comedy act. I would want to tell him about how I felt when I first heard the joke, um, well, the jokes, plural, about how I tried to end my life, how it felt as a 13 years old to just think about dying because you think that because a 40 year old man say so that you should die. That was Jeremy Gabriel speaking earlier today. He says he was disappointed with the outcome of the ruling, but he does respect the Supreme Court's decision and the act as well. So a little bit of context on the act. So this was a high profile case, again, looking at artistic expression in this case, in the form of what you might call dark comedy against the protection of one's dignity. So in his act... Mike Ward took aim at some well-known figures, including Celine Dion, including some other celebrities, you might say. And that's come into question as well. If some people are more, if it's okay to go after some people rather than people who wouldn't be considered celebrity. Well, in 2016, Quebec's Human Rights Tribunal ordered Ward pay $35,000 in moral and punitive damages to Gabriel because of the remarks he made during his show in 2010 and 2013. So the court ruling at the Supreme Court of Canada overrules that and says that his comments about the singer did not amount to discrimination under Quebec's rights charter. Well, let's bring in John Cullen. John Cullen is a Vancouver comedian, also a podcast host and joins us now. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jill. How are you? Very well. How about you? Yeah, doing good. Doing good. (laughs) As a comedian, what is your response to this case and the fact that this case did make it all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada? Um, well, certainly the fact that it made it to the Supreme Court of Canada was pretty crazy. I think, I think most comedians were we're a little bit scared, I think is probably the best way of putting it. Um, you know, I think when it went through the, the courts in Quebec and then obviously Gabriel got the, the $35,000 settlement, I think probably most of us would have thought, okay, maybe that's enough. Like, that's, that's pretty good. I would like to have someone make fun of me and then pay me $35,000. Um, but yeah, the fact that it made it to the Supreme Court uh, was a little bit scary, I would say. It's scary also, I think, because while this did rule, the court did rule in favor of the comedian, it was a 5-4 ruling, which is pretty close. Well, you couldn't get closer than that. Yeah, exactly. And I think it just, I think it's a good, I think it's a sort of barometer of where we're at right now in 2021 as a society, that this is something that we're talking about. And I don't, I don't think the conversation is bad, but I think uh, if Mike Ward were have to lost this case uh, at the Supreme Court, 
I, I think that's a pretty scary proposition for a lot of not just comedians, but creative people in general. Because it could have had a very big, a big, I don't know if dark cloud is is the right expression, but I mean, it, it would have made people think twice, which isn't always a bad thing, but it would have perhaps watered down what people do as, as part of freedom of expression. For sure. And I think one thing that you know, I can speak as a, you know, a comedian that's certainly not as, as popular and famous as Mike Ward. I mean, I think living in BC, some of us don't fully get how huge of a comedian Mike Ward is in, in Quebec. You know, he's, you know, famous and has lots of money and all that kind of thing. I mean, I think, you know, obviously you don't want to see it happen to anybody, but I think the concern as someone who, you know, like myself or other comedians who are sort of at my level where, you know, we we cut our teeth across the across the nation playing clubs and playing shows. Uh, you know, we wouldn't be able to afford thirty five thousand dollars or whatever the you know the amount might be. And so I think that's where it starts to get even scarier. Is is that you know you're dealing with someone here who ultimately could afford you know the penalty that was sort of handed out to him. And and I think that's the that's the part of it that that got really sort of hairy for us is is yeah like where where do we draw the line like does it have to be uh, a really famous person in a big setting doing it or could it just be in a bar in Vancouver on a Thursday and you make fun of the wrong person and now all of a sudden you're going to court right and and what do you think about the material itself in that there's that discussion about it's one thing to make fun of a celebrity, to make fun of somebody with a high profile. Is it different, though, when it's a scenario like this and here's a well-known comedian in Quebec making fun of somebody who I'm, I'm get, I mean, some people knew who he was because he had he had sung a song with Celine Dion, but but somebody that most people really wouldn't have had a clue who this guy was. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting, Jill, because I think as you know, for me anyway, in, in, in my act, I, I, I try to avoid punching down. I, I think it's, you know, it's something that's easy to do. And I think in this situation, most people can agree that is kind of what Mike Ward did, regardless of, you know, Gabriel's status as a celebrity or not a celebrity or whatever the case. Um, you know, I think that that part of it is something that is worth exploring and worth considering. But the whole celebrity angle, oh, if you're in the public eye, you deserve to be made fun of, or not deserve, but like it's, it becomes more okay, um, I, I think is maybe also part of it. Uh, like, I, I think that that's somewhat relevant because, again, you're setting a dangerous precedent there, too, where if you say, uh, okay, well, now everybody is off limits, even people who are in the public eye, uh, you know, now is is libel going to be a thing that's happening all the time on a much greater scale? And I think that that's probably something the Supreme Court was considering when they handed out this um, this decision today. Right. And, and I think it also brings into uh, there are probably a lot of people who, who didn't even think that joke was funny. But does that mean a comedian can't say it? Well, yeah, I mean, certainly that's, uh, again, if we're talking about it on a much, on a smaller scale, that's the other thing too, is, is that, you know, I think if you're, if you're starting out as a comedian, you're trying to find your footing, you know, you're maybe less aware of what it takes to write a good joke. And I think when a lot of comedians start out, you do sort of start out maybe punching down more than you'd like to, or, you know, just trying to find your way. You try to find what's funny and you're trying to figure yourself out. And so, 
you know, yeah, that's the other thing is you might be a, a brand new comedian or, or a newer comedian and you don't really understand the, you know, the ways to go about perhaps writing, a, 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 I guess, an edgy joke, for lack of a better word. And and then all of a sudden you're in trouble and, and you don't even really know better, I guess, is, is the way I would phrase it. So I think, yeah, like that's the other thing is you could tell a joke that gets no laughs. So not only are you getting no laughs, but then you're also maybe uh, facing, you know, some additional punishment as well. It's um, it's certainly a tricky line to walk. And, and I think that that's as a comedian, what we all kind of thought was, you know, how far would this stretch? All right, Uh, John, we'll leave it there. But thanks so much for joining us to talk about this from your point of view. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Just a quick mention before we get to our monthly book segment just released. The federal government, we now are British Columbians, will now have access to the federal, the Canadian COVID-19 proof of vaccination for travel. This is starting tomorrow, the same day that the rules go into place. Proof of vaccination will be required when traveling in Canada by air, rail or cruise ship. And the access will be very similar to how people in BC have been accessing their BC vaccine card. The new federal proof of vaccination can be accessed through the Health Gateway, the Minister of Health's web service by phone or in person at most Service BC offices. So BC has now signed on to be part of the federal access card. That information just coming from the BC government. All right, let's check in with Marianne Yazajin, manager at Book Warehouse. So we talk about books on the last Friday of every month, which which happens to be today. Marianne, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Jill. Uh, it's going to be a beautiful weekend, but there's nothing stopping people from cuddling up with a, a good book or where, wherever you might want to do that, maybe in a window with some nice sunshine. So let's see what we're talking about first, The Lincoln Highway. Yes. Now, this was one of my favorite books so far this year. Did you read Rules of Civility or Gentleman in Moscow? No, I did not. Okay. Those are his two previous novels. This is by Amor Tolls. So his two previous novels, both fantastic. If anybody has read them and loved them, definitely pick up this new one, The Lincoln Highway. So this takes place in June of 1954, where this 18-year-old boy, Emmett, he's been driven home by the warden of the juvenile work farm, where he's just served 15 months for involuntary manslaughter. After the warden drives away, he discovers that two of his friends put themselves in the trunk of the car and then got out when they got to his house. So they've basically escaped from the work camp. Mm. So the three of them end up on this across America journey going to New York, along with Emmett's eight-year-old brother. The entire book takes place over 10 days. It's told from multiple points of view, and it's just fantastic. It's friendship and family, about companionship, hope. It's an epic adventure story. It just, it makes you feel all the feels. And I love books that do that and and also can take place in in such a short period of time when when looking Mm -hmm. at this one, it's just 10 days, but so much happening. Exactly. You just get right into the lives of these characters. And like I said, it's told from multiple points of view. And it's one of those I find often when I'm reading a book and they flip viewpoints, I think, oh, no, I want to go back to that character. And then I think, oh, no, but I love this new one so much. And then I love the next one and the next one. And yeah, he's just one of my favorite writers. All right. That is The Lincoln Highway. Uh, People will recognize the name Dave, Dave Eggers. And the new book here is The Every. 
Yes. Now, this is one that my colleague here at our Main Street store, Alana, highly recommends. I haven't read it yet, but I have read every other one of Dave Egger's previous novels, and I've loved them. Um, So about this one, Alana says, imagine if Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, and Google got together and made a giant tech baby. This is the every. It's Dave Egger's follow-up to the book The Circle, which people may have read a few years ago. She says it's absurdly funny and just close enough to reality to completely horrify you. (laughs) So, yeah, I found when I read The Circle quite a few years ago, um, it's just so much about technology that I I would look at, pull out my phone out of my pocket and think, oh, my gosh, so many people are listening to me right now. Mm. It, uh, It gets in your head. Interesting. And it's a, it's classified as a suspense and thriller. Is that a is that a good classification for it? Yes, I would say it sort of goes in between like fiction and suspense thriller. There's definitely, yeah, enough about uh, how true it is to horrify you. For sure. <laughs> All right. That one, yeah, that one that might be frightening for people. Uh, this one yes. is one of those books I absolutely love the title. I love mm-hmm. you, but I've chosen darkness. I know. Just one of the best titles, isn't it? And this one is recommended by my colleague Gabrielle here at the Main Street Store. Uh, so this book is by Claire Vay Watkins. And what I think is so interesting about it is that it's semi-autobiographical. So it's the coming-of-age story of Claire, which is her real name. And her father, in real life, was a member of the Manson family. Mm. So she, yes, right? So she has written this semi-autobiographical novel where we meet Claire in this complete moment of crisis. It's a homecoming moment, but it's also she's having to revisit her past. He says this is just a beautifully written prose, and it just paints this whole emotional landscape for the reader. You will get lost in this book. I, I love the ones too. Or, or do you find it distracting or not when it's semi-autobiographical? In that, are you wondering what's true and what's not? Yes, to a degree, I think so. Um, I don't know. Did you read Shuggy Bain that won the? I think it was the Booker last year. No, that's another one of those where, as you're reading it, you know it's semi-autobiographical. You know it's based on the author's true life. But the whole book, it, it's about a man growing up in poverty in Glasgow in the 1970s, and he's you know coming to terms with his sexuality and like just everything in his life is horrible. So you're reading the book and you're thinking, oh my gosh, the author went through most of these things in their real life. How is it possible that they've come out of it and written this amazing novel. So yes, you do wonder like what's true, what's not, what's embellished. Mm-hmm. And I, I love this one. So this one's out, I think is it's only in hardcover right now, but a beautiful cover on this book as well. Yes. Yes. All right. Let's move to Matrix, not The Matrix. <laughs> Matrix, no. what is this one about? This is uh, by Lauren Groff, and this one is recommended both by Anissa at Broadway and Gina, our main buyer. So um, Anissa calls this a thematic successor to Hamlet and Judith. So if anybody's read that book by Maggie O'Farrell, definitely pick up Matrix. So this one follows the life of a medieval nun and her quest to build local power, protect her fellow nuns, navigate church politics, and balance her heart and her faith. Anissa says it's full of strong women, history, beautiful writing, and just a book that you sink right into. Hmm. All right. Matrix. I want to make sure we have time to get to them them all. What is Cloud Cuckoo? 
Cloud Cuckoo Land. Uh, so this is the new book by Anthony Doerr, who people will remember from being the author of All the Light We Cannot See. <gasps> Love that book. Yes, I know, right? And this one is a big book. So this, yeah, like I said, also recommended by Anissa. She says it's about hope, the power of literature, the ways that people are connected across time and space, and humanity's relationship with nature. It's beautiful, occasionally laugh out loud, sometimes heartbreaking, and highly relevant. And she said anybody who just wants a good, smart autumn read, especially if you like ancient Greek literature or Station Eleven, which really intrigues me because those are very different so things. I was just say, where, hmm, where is the common ground there? Hmm. This book goes all over the place. Which is interesting. All the light we cannot see. I, I just absolutely loved. I would put it as one of my favorite books. But I was so I was almost hesitant when I started reading that one because I don't often I find for whatever reason I'm not super drawn to books that are fiction that take place during the war. But that okay. book was just so beautifully written and such just such a, a beautiful story. I agree. I also love that one. All right. So Cloud Cuckoo Land, that one, I think mm-hmm. a lot of people will be checking that one out as well. Yes. Uh, Denial by Beverly McLaughlin. Yes. Now, I haven't read this one yet, but the owner of the store, Kathy, highly recommends this. So this is by Beverly McLaughlin, who people will recognize as the former Chief Justice of Canada. This is actually the sequel to the book Full Disclosure. So it's the second of her Jilly Truett novels. Kathy calls it a great twisting mystery, takes place in lots of Vancouver sites and restaurants, which I always think is fun to read a book set in Vancouver, where you recognize everywhere the the characters go. So if you want a good, smart mystery, try this one, Denial by Beverly McLaughlin. I always wonder when people, uh, we have a a local physician who's very busy being a doctor as well, but writes Mm -hmm. mystery books. I always wonder where where people get the time to do this. I know. Do you mean Don Kella? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I know. I, I, I can't believe it. He's written so many books and so, so great, so well received, excellent books, and also has a full-time job as a doctor. I have no idea. Yeah, it makes me feel like an underachiever, but I'm glad that they're putting all of these, these great books out there. Uh, let's, yes. let's take a look at n- one more. Uh, this mm-hmm. one is Misfits. Yes, so this is by Michaela Cole, and people will recognize her name. She is a writer and actor. She's the creator and star of I May Destroy You and Chewing Gum. So this book is it's a nice little book. Uh, it was originally delivered uh, as the McTaggart Lecture at the Edinburgh International Television Festival, but this book builds on that. So it's personal stories, it's revelations about race, class, gender, about reckoning with trauma, and about practicing radical honesty. And like I said, it's a little book, but this is just the perfect gift book for serious inspiration and contemplation. I, I devoured it. Mm, all right. That's fun, too. When, when, even when a book is great, if you know it's a big commitment, that can be a bit daunting. So being mm-hmm. able to, to have a quick book is also a nice alternative. Exactly. And it's still one that really makes you think, but it's just a, a nice little read. All right. Well, that definitely has given people a, a lot of different options. And you just mentioned gift book, which makes me realize, Marianne, the next time we talk, because we talk at the last mm-hmm. Friday of every month, the next time we talk, we will likely be giving Christmas ideas. Yes. <laughs> All right. Yes. Well, I look forward to that. Me too. Thank you. All right, Marianne, always good to chat with you. Thank you so much for those book recommendations. Thanks very much, Jill.